Welcome to the Roll Down Podcast, hosted live on Twitch every Tuesday night. Now, here's your hosts, Cutler and Soul! Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Can everyone hear us? Hello, hello. They can hear us. Okay. All right. Hello, everybody. That's fine. We're here. We're here. We're here. Hi. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roll Down <laughs> Podcast, episode 26. You'd think after 26 episodes, we would be better at this. However, that is not the case. And to join me in this confusing mediocrity is Sol, my co-host. It is a pleasure yeah. to see you. It's good to be here, as always. Guys, we have a heavy hitter episode this week. We have the brilliant esports lore on the show. It is so great to have you, Bryce. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to hanging out and talking about TFT. Guys, we're going to jump straight into it. Um, we talked a little bit uh, next week, by the way. Bryce has given us the brilliant idea to live to let you guys hear our pre-show. So we talked about some great stuff in there that you guys didn't get to hear, but we're going to basically no. redo it now <laughs> uh, instead. And one of those things uh, is, Bryce, we want to talk a little bit about your background, uh, how you came into the gaming scene and, and how you discovered TFT. Uh, gaming, I, I don't, re- I mean, I played games since I was a little kid. My parents actually wouldn't let me own a console uh, because they thought that video games rotted your brain. So I would just spend a lot of time at my friend's house playing video games. And then eventually we had a PC and I played games on that. Um, in my car- the career part of this, I kind of, I often reflect that I fell into it and then I ran with it. So I was a diehard uh, League of Legends player from season one on and in law school, there's a weird dynamic where you basically get the job that you're going to have when you graduate a lot of the time when you're done with your first year, even though law school is only three years, uh, is three is three full years. Because what happens is the summer after your first year, you start applying for your internship for the second year. And then if you get it at a firm, then the, you go intern there, but then they hire you when you graduate, like most of the time. And so I basically had my job lined up from the very beginning of my second year of law school on. So then at that point in time, law school grades were no longer particularly relevant for me, which was great because then I could play a bunch of league. And so then I, I <laughs> just kept playing league and then I fell in love with league esports as well. I mean, I had followed competitive StarCraft and, and Counter-Strike before that, but not super seriously. League was kind of my first true love from an esports perspective. So then when I graduated... I went and practiced at that big law firm, uh, which had nothing to do with esports. I was just a commercial litigator, but I wound up uh, writing an article. This is 2013, end of 2013. I wrote an article forecasting the legal future of esports vis-a-vis the legal history of traditional sports. So it was just like comparative analysis. Hey, we're going to have player contracts and we're going to worry about media rights and collective bargaining and all this kind of stuff. And I posted on the League of Legends subreddit. It was the it wound up being the number one post that day, and the rest was history. I had teams and influencers and players getting in touch with me about doing their legal work. Uh, I was not really qualified to do that or any legal work because I had only been practicing law for like two months. And law school bears absolutely no resemblance to the actual practice of law. But I was I was fortunate to be at a bigger firm with smart lawyers who could do the work. So I would originate it, and they would kind of train me up as as they went. And then you know, fast forward to today, and it's my career. Oh, that's great. I love love hearing that. That's really cool. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about, I th- I think the the meteoric rise of League of Legends is how many young professionals and and young people sort of, I guess, fell as you said, fell backwards into these crazy roles. You know, 
19 year olds owning owning teams and having these huge multi-million dollar businesses and things like that um league of legends uh, as starcraft did before it really paved the way for these crazy advances in in the gaming industry and so coming on to tft um obviously you said you're a massive league of legends player when tft first came out was it something that you were like yeah that i'm really gonna i really like that kind of thing that's the something i want to get into or was that something that kind of just you found yourself playing it every so often i so i did not so for a bunch of people came to tft via auto chess right or underlords and i did not um i had not really gotten into those games i'd always played strategy games right i grew up playing mtg and various other strategy games but I'd never really gotten into them super deeply. I did have a really deep background in poker. I supported myself for a long time playing poker, or at least sort of supported myself. It was a nice supplement to my income. Um, and so it kind of came naturally to me. So many people were playing TFT and loving it. So many of my friends, they're like, you should play TFT. And I actually played my first game of TFT ever in Vegas. I was there playing in the World Series of Poker, and I was hanging out with a bunch of, like, Po- pro pro poker players because one of my buddies is good friends with all of them um and so we were in i think it was justin bonomo's anyone who knows poker we were in justin bonomo's <laughs> yeah. apartment yeah in <laughs> yeah with like yeah, scott Seaver and some other pros oh, yeah, that's super and, sick. Wait, and we were all just playing tft so cool. my first game ever right. and i immediately fell in love with it i was like this game is so good and we went from the next day we went to like a pc bung in vegas and we and we played a bunch more tft so by the time i left Vegas. I had not won the World Series of Poker, but I had fallen in love with TFT. So then I started playing a lot, and you know, kept playing. Great, that's so cool. I love that story. That's awesome. Uh, talking a little bit more about like the in-depth style of TFT. Now, I mean, you have your own podcast, you have your own show, you you cast. You're a big part of this really growing and 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 big scene that's really coming up in in the area um what got you into the 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 sort of the analytical casting aspect was that more your legal background where you you knew that you wanted to get into it from that from that area no not really i think in my life this is the story it's how i got into esports and story of a lot of things i don't i don't really make plans and then you know executing into those plans i tend to just be very open-minded about opportunities that are come coming to me and then if I like something, I will follow follow through on it. And I'm I tend to have a pretty obsessive personality. So when I follow through on something, it tends to be pretty intense. So for me, it was first, I was really enjoying TFT. I got an opportunity to compete. Uh, I played in the open bracket of the original TFT LAN at TwitchCon, uh, the Twitch Rivals TFT event in set one, and did really well. I was one of eight people to make it through like a multiple hundred person open bracket and made the five, the top 32, which was eight people through the open bracket and the rest were, you know, it was Milk and Soju and a whole bunch of other invited players uh, and did pretty well actually on, in, on that uh, in the final 32 and tried to compete a little bit, but it became really clear to me pretty early on that I was just never going to be able to play enough games to be able to reach my peak potential in TFT. Because I have a full-time job, I have a wife, I have a whole bunch of other demands in my time. I've probably played since, I've played since set one, I've played fewer than 1,500 games total across every set. Um, and so it was just, I was never going to be able to do that. And so as much fun as I was having competing and taking my shot, and I did okay in a couple of tournaments, uh, I, I just felt like it was never going to be able to pan out for me. And then I became really good friends with with Frodan, and he, um, he obviously is one of the most talented casters, not just in TFT, but in the industry, period. And 
we talked about it a little bit. It would be fun if, and so then I got a shot to do it for Giant Slayer, and I did it for their Fight Night Rising and had a blast. And so when they, people kept inviting me to do it, I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And then it's all just kind of organically happened from there, to be honest with you. It was not like, oh, I'm going to have a side gig as a caster, but I enjoyed it. I kept getting invited back. I in The obsessive personality thing, I just like kept watching back my VODs and asking for feedback and working on it with Frodan and got to the point where I'm at least a semi-competent semi caster in how I think. And then the podcast was really similar. It was just Dan and I engaged in some of the nerdiest TFT conversations you could possibly imagine. And we were like, what if instead of just doing this on my couch, you know, once a week, we did this on a podcast occasionally. And that's how Don't Talk If You Don't Talk If You Don't Know was born. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, I really, um, I think we've got a lot of great questions later on from, um, from some of our community about sort of podcasts and the, and the content creation space. So we will come back to that because I really want to get back into it. But for now, I want to get into the main topic of our episode and that is saying goodbye to set six to set 6.5 so i'm going to come to you first on this one we've sort of discussed uh, quite a lot on this podcast since it started just before set six actually came out so we've sort of been the we've sort of been here for the whole the whole ride as you will um i want to ask you first of all about a memorable moment from from the last set set six 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 point five worth of worth of content uh, that, you, that you have personally six point five right not six yeah yeah uh, we'll do six point five first we might come back to six point oh and some of the things that i guess there were two memorable moments the first one is probably more memorable but it was um it was uh making day two of the uh scholar cup I had already forgotten. I think that's what it was called, right? I had yeah. already forgotten what the twenty yeah. was called. But it was making day two, and that was really, really cool because uh, it felt like a nice sort of redemption arc after uh, after sort of sort of crashing and burning in in the first open in six uh, point So that was really, really cool. Um, didn't make a past. Didn't make it to the top eight, unfortunately. But making day two, making day two was still cool. Uh, and then the other one was probably uh, hitting one KLP. Uh, hitting like plus one KLP for like the first time, um, which was not not something like I'd ever really like. It was not something like I'd ever really like gone for, gone for. Um, but it was like it was like a chip off my shoulder because I was like always hovering around like 940, 950 LP, never across like one K for like basically every set, like after like five point five. So yeah, those are probably and the every, two memorable. That, that feels so good getting over whatever your threshold is, whatever whether yeah. whether that's getting into masters or getting a certain LP mm. number or whatever. When you finally get there, God, it feels mm-hmm. good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, oh, finally. Okay, four digits. Okay, I've done it once. I don't have to worry about it ever again. <laughs> yeah. Next yeah. step is 1,500, right? That's the next goal. True, true, true. Oh, 100 at a time. 100 at a time. Okay, 1,100 next. Bryce, yeah, 1,100 I wanna, next. I want to come to you and ask, Um, you know, 6.5, big set, world championships within it, regionals within it. I mean, you you know, your experience getting to cast major events in it. Um, If you could pick even just one sort of moment of yours that stands out for 6.5 what um what what do you what would you say that is God, i was thinking about this when you asked him because i was like god I, so i can't the spicy appies chemtech nar game yeah that was either the game. last oh. tournament that was oh, either the spicy. last tournament of set six or the first tournament of set 6.5 and i honestly don't remember which tournament it was i'm in. pretty sure it was the challenger series in 6.5 okay that's what i thought yeah so that that one for me I'm a huge Appy's stan. I think I think Appy's place is the most beautiful TFT of anyone in in North America and maybe even the world. And to watch him 
do that. It was also such a fun moment because I, I pride myself on being a deeply analytical caster. I think if, if I, there is a hallmark to my casting is that I'm willing to kind of criticize the players more often, go a little bit deeper into the nuance of TFT. It's what I enjoy. And I think that for a more hardcore viewer, it's probably what they appreciate most about my casting. And so the only time I can remember, we got to a board and, I, and Dan started talking, kind of setting it up. And then he kicked it over to me to like provide analysis to do my job, basically. And I just said, I basically said, I have no idea what the fuck is happening. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't swear because it was on main broadcast. But I was like, I'm along for the ride along with everyone else. I don't know why this is working. This board kind of looks terrible. I don't. I, it doesn't. You know. And then I, over time, was able to kind of piece it together. It was fun. It was a really fun moment to get on a board. We had not seen his board at all, so we had no idea how he got there. And I was just looking at. It, I was like, What on earth, Appies? Like, what? What is happening? <laughs> why? Why? What? Blue buff? Kimtech? Nar? And this is not just working, but it was dominating it was it was winning fights easily he winds up you know eventually losing and taking a second place in that game but that definitely would be my highlight of 6.5 yeah that's a really good answer i had written down in, in my notes um appy's rise to prominence during that event because uh, basically yeah. up until uh, up until that point appy's although a really fantastic streamer and a fantastic uh, person hadn't had that big um that big notable tft moment at that point so I think that's a really, a really, really great answer. I want to jump into more of the unit-specific things. Uh, we've talked a lot about this podcast about uh, unit strength, board strength, item strength, character strength, player strength, and things like that. But now I want to get serious. I want to get, which units are you hoping never come back ever again? And I'm going to start with you, Sol, um, because I have some hot takes on this one, I think. I'm down for I'm down for Draven to not get reprinted for uh, at least two three sets. <laughs> <laughs> good idea. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Bryce, how about how about you? I mean, we've had such a we've had such a an up and down set with twit longers and complaints about the game and the game being unbalanced or balanced or good or bad or this patch is great this patch is terrible mini patches third patches micro patches uh, where do you sort of stand on the on the unit balance right now well right now i think the game's in a really good spot yeah. I, I will say that i think that purely from a casting perspective this is one of the weaker balance states for regionals and worlds that I can remember. And that's the most important time of the year for balance to be right. So that part of it was a little bit hard for me just as, as a hardcore esports fan. Um, unit that I hope never comes back. I don't know that I like actively hated any units this set. There were a few units that were deeply unsatisfying to me. Like I think that Renata as an AP carry was so it just did not fulfill that like that fantasy for me at all yeah super unfun unit it was really hard because of this damage over time thing was a cool concept but it was really hard to follow in the fights and to understand whether or not she was doing what she was supposed to be doing and yeah. it's been a meaningful period of time in the set where she was just unbelievably broken and then she was terrible for a little bit uh, so i just uh, that unit i have no affinity for whatsoever I feel like the the problem with Renata is like um, she's 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 just so weak. Like she just scales so weirdly compared to every other AP carry. Like she scales off of like Morello and like Mana and like healing. Yeah. But like she doesn't scale with AP at all. So it's really like like she, she does, but she doesn't scale well with AP. It's very counterintuitive. Like putting like a death cap or like a jewel combo is like pretty worthless on like Renata. And, yeah. yeah. And I don't hate 
there's they were trying to with Ari as well when you think about it because mm-hmm. like more dog in the early parts of the of six point five was talking about you just have to think about Ari Ari differently and like war mogs and I actually don't I, I think that I don't think either of those units were particularly successful personally but mm-hmm. I I see what they were doing with Ari at least and I mm-hmm. enjoy the possibility of that power fantasy. I felt like the only time Ari was like really a deeply satisfying year for me was in Synaptic when she was unbelievably broken. Oh, yeah. And that mm-hmm. like chain yep, cast, yep, yep. more orbs, more orbs. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I don't think either of those units were particularly successful, but I, I really do enjoy the direction. I don't hate the idea of a counterintuitive AP carry as long as it actually like works out that way, which I don't mm-hmm. think either of them really did. Yeah. Good point there, because I think um, although... I felt quite strongly that Lux never really fulfilled, and set 6.0 Lux, I should add, never really fulfilled the exact AP uh, power fantasy that you really wanted. She was more of a traditional TFT AP unit, where she was very reliant on a combo to burst out the back line or to burst out a tank really quickly so your other units can get to the back line. Um, and aside from Victor staying around and in some patches being really, really good, uh, you didn't really get an AP fantasy in this particular set, 6.5, at all. I will say, uh, for one thing, uh, one of the one of my hot takes is that for the whole of set 6.0, we basically talked about the issue on this podcast with them not understanding what Seraphine's identity was. And I will say, I don't want them to ever have a unit like Seraphine in the game ever again. A unit that dam- that is that is not a damage dealer and not a healer but at the same time when the numbers get too wrong is both um and i think um it's a really difficult balance it was a really difficult balanced set 6.0 specifically because they had so many things that they were working on new for the first time and a lot of issues with it um so i would really like them to stay clear of if they're going to go for all these crazy ideas to sort of not dumb down the units but at the very least don't make units that are trying to do four things at once because Seraphine really has this whole set been a unit that is trying to do too much. Uh, that would be just my opinion on that one. And I, I would really love to um, to carry on and, and talk a little bit more about um, like I- items. I think that's a, that's a big one here as well. I, I would say the items have felt relatively underwhelming and I think that has a lot to do with the, the spatula strength in, in 6.5. So what are your thoughts on them? Um, on where we sort of stand with with items as we as we say goodbye to six point five. Oh, oh, uh, so items. That's that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I don't know if everyone agrees with you know the take I'm about to have, but I know at least Aki's has her back. We discussed it last time, but uh, right now, uh, frontline items are not very good. Uh, backline items are sort of where where, where it's at. Um, mostly due to the fact that like there's a lot of there's a lot of backline access right now, there's a lot of AoE in the game, so, um, you know, your triple tank item, Leona, usually ends up being, like, the, the, the last unit is still standing while the rest of your backline is completely dead. So, uh, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that, like, uh, I'm not sure if it necessarily, like, needs a reworking or anything, I think it's more a symptom of the way the champion pool behaves. So I think in terms of item balance, I think item balance itself is in a fine spot. It's it, it, it's more that like we'll have to see how the champion balance shapes out, you know. So hopefully, you know, frontline items get you know end up in a sort of better spot. But yeah, I think and, I think cloak is also a huge problem. 
because the way in which AP works in being AP is essentially always AOE focused, right? Because it's just mm. kind of part of the fantasy of of an AP focused carry, and that makes declaw functionally useless because who gives a shit if you protect one unit? And declaw doesn't even do its job that well, right? If we're being mm. honest, it doesn't even protect that one unit that well from from AP yep. damage, and so. I just it just means that defensive itemization always feels a little bit weaker. You know, Gargoyle's been in a pretty weak state this this uh, whole set basically. So I think that there is there are some balancing things that they could do to the items in addition to what you're describing, which is the design elements of the game that are making mm-hmm. defensive itemization feel weaker. Yeah, yeah, good points all around. I w- I would say as well that we got a lot of um a lot of different gameplay throughout this set, mostly because of the change to GA. Um, I think that the addition of Edge of Night is actually a really positive one overall for the game. I think that the way that they described removing GA was was something that I totally agreed with. It was a very uh, limiting limiting factor, and I think the way that it's designed now is really cool. I'd love to see if there's some interactions with it in the new set, like kind of Jinx. I guess, you know, where like someone jumps into the back line and you get to the aggro and, and things like that because if it's just stuck being an ad backline item um i guess we will have to wait and see on that one so I, I wanted to come to you and and sort of you know continue our little goodbyes and say if, if you have a, a moment from from this podcast or, or from from your streams or anything like that perhaps something that really sticks out to you when you think about set 6.5 oh bad oh is that 6.5? Okay, I don't know about 6.5, but, um, I mean, okay, this is, this ass is kind of cheating. But, uh, I mean, I, it's just been really cool to see how much this po- sort of podcast has grown, um, throughout all of just sort of set 6.0 to where we are now, because, like, um, you know, for, you know, those that went here for when it first started, right? Um, we, we started this podcast, like, I think literally as 6.0 began. I think that was our first episode. Mm-hmm. We did one covering what all the new champions and everything were. And, you know, to sort of see how far that's, how far we've come from that, from then all the way to now at the end of 6.5, um, yeah, I think that's really, really cool. Um, yeah, so kind of cheating by saying that, like, all the moments are good, but, uh, yeah, all the moments are pretty good. But they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Facts, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, Bryce, I mean, I know, uh, as I said earlier, it's been a bit of a whirlwind sort of set for for everybody, it feels like, especially in a, in a content create a sort of space if you if you could pick out a, a personal moment for you that you feel like really stood out you know i was thinking about casting moments and honestly i think this was not a great casting set for me overall i wound up having really bad luck in set six scheduling wise where like they were over the whole course of set six i had like four weekends that i had something planned and every single one of those weekends there was a big tft term it was so brutal and so I basically didn't cast set six at all. I casted one, I cast the alley coin event, which is like a small side event. It was a one day thing. And then I casted a few events in set 6.5, but I didn't get invited to do worlds, which was a bummer. And I'm sad I didn't get to do worlds and regionals was really good for sure. But I don't know if there was like a stick out moment. I think that probably my favorite moment of set six was actually on the Don't Talk If You Don't Know podcast, our last episode. I thought it was our best episode ever. I thought it was a really good episode, but there was a moment at the, we had Goobums and Ramblin' on and Goobums was the unanimous number one, and so it was kind of like a victory lap for him on the set. And Goobums and I have been friends. He's one of my closest friends in TFT, probably my closest friend in TFT other than Frodan. Uh, we're definitely up there. We, we, we go way back. He coached me in set three, I think. 
and then we just kind of became friends and have hung out in discords and you know had spammed each other messages about tft on an almost daily basis ever since so um to share that moment with him and kind of celebrate it with him and have him on this podcast that we had built and have it kind of be this capstone moment for him on this whole set where he got to kind of take his victory lap was really it was super fun to kind of feel like we were coming full circle so i really enjoyed that moment awesome yeah really great really great answer there um i would like to also just do a little quick shout out obviously for those of us who are listening to this be it live right now or or afterwards the don't talk if you don't know show is so good it's so great it's really it's a really enjoyable experience and i think that having an analytical and oftentimes data-driven or you know things like the new Hyrule radio show and things like that which I will get into in a moment having these sort of big nerd analytical discussions about TFT is so fucking sick it's so cool for like nerds like us for the people that love TFT esports for the people that love the minutiae of TFT it's great it is really great I want to talk about Hyrule radio (laughs) I want to talk about Hyrule radio I want to talk about um uh reddit threads and reddit responses and math and i mean so just if if you want to because i find i find it hard to talk about um the acer episode that we had without sounding ridiculous so from your perspective as <laughs> as someone that comes from a poker back so you know you've played poker casually yep. you've played in tournaments you played things like that so you know mm-hmm. having acer on on this podcast when we talk about probability and like life theories and and how to live and i was wondering if you could sort of um talk a little bit about that sort of experience before we sort of get a little bit deeper into the into what's going what's currently sweet yeah sure i i still feel like we went overboard on that episode to be honest and it it was like it was yeah some some of it was like like i'm loving it but i I don't know if you know a lot of the the listeners like like a lot of this (laughs) stuff you know what i mean so it was kind of (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of heavy, uh, but you know, I, 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 um, I, I, I love like discussing like just the, like you know things like maximizing your EV and like you know f- trying to find like the the best like optimization for specific situations, right? So it was really fun to talk to Acer about, I guess. Um, I, I don't know what else to really say, but like, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I am. Uh, I am an enjoyer of these uh these massive nerd conversations about TFT. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. And that's um that's how we ended up starting up this podcast. Bryce, coming to you now, I've been wondering if like in a very quick recap for people that might not be aware, um, on the most recent um discussion with Socks and with Acer and with Natures and with yourself, I was I was wondering if um you could sort of sort of simplify it for people that may not be aware of kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. So, I mean, look, if you want to do the deep dive and look at Sox's, you know, modeling that he, that he coded out, you can, if you really want to understand this, you need like a PhD in statistics, which I do not have. Um, But I do, I am, yeah, I played a lot of poker and I studied a meaningful amount of statistics back in the day. And so I know enough to be dangerous. Look, the simple version of this is really about how much variance there actually is in a tournament of TFT. And it is a combination of understanding one, how like how much control a player has over that variance. And then by extension of that, what 
player is actually capable of achieving in an individual tournament of TFT from an edge perspective, right? And this is a fight that I've been having. I feel like I've been fighting this for literal years at this point. There's There are a couple of hills that I have died on from my earliest days in creating content in TFT. And one, one of them was that TFT tournaments are completely different than ladder. And using yeah. ladder to equate to tournaments is just a ridiculous exercise. And then two... I think that the people talk about tournaments as RNG fests. It's, it's really part and parcel of the same argument. They would say, look, tournaments are just basically a whole bunch of people with the same skill level, and they're playing six games, so that's nothing from a sample size perspective. So it's just total RNG. Therefore, the really only way to identify how good someone is is ladder, where you have infinite volume, right? And so the sample size is big enough that we can actually extrapolate from that. And I completely disagree with that line of argumentation. And so what this was really driving down on is, how far can we take that, right? What is the likelihood when someone is the best player in the field by a wide margin of making it to day two of an event, making it to day three of an event, of winning an event, of finishing the top three event, whatever it is. And so that's what this was. This whole argument was about. Hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, look, I mean, as you said, I mean, I certainly don't have any um, background in statistics or, or anything like that. But what I, I do want to say about this whole big discussion on it is i think the conclusions that everybody was coming to were not super par far apart from one another at the end of the day i think a yeah. lot of people were saying you know if you are the the best tft player if you are the tft player with the highest skill in a particular tournament out of the percentage chance that you will participate in the final day or make it through is always going to be higher than anybody else's solely based on your skill level. And I was wondering, but the question is how much higher? Yeah. How much higher of course is the very, is the very deep question. And the question that, that I'm sure that uh, those with a statistics background are, are much more capable of answering, but I wanted to ask I mean, you, I, you want, I can, I can, I'm happy to dive into that a little yeah, bit. Oh, please certainly get there. into it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do. So, okay, so look, the, if you watch the High Roll Radio episode, we barely scratched the surface of it because it's four people, mm. wasn't a prepared conversation, everyone's kind of making different points, and if we're being honest, we weren't directly engaging each other's points. It was a lot of kind of two ships passing the night, except for it was more like four ships passing the night. <laughs> um, but if you, re if, you, if you look at, if you actually analyze the TFT being played, I feel very strongly that the skill gaps in a big tournament are wide even if we're talking about a a tournament like regionals where theoretically it's all really good players you know 24 of the best players in uh in north america all duking it out i think that Gubum's skill advantage over basically everyone in that field except for ramblin was wide and i think that his skill advantage over everyone except for maybe the other four to five players was very wide um oh we're getting ads running should i stop I don't know oh no it's okay yeah feel free to keep going <laughs> oh, okay, okay fair enough um Anyway, so I think that the skill margin could be very wide. And I think that what actually happens in big TFT tournaments is that you have, like, the best player that's really prepared, that has an, a knowledge and a skill edge on the field, and they're gobbling up a huge percentage of the edge. So I think if you're looking at, like, the middle player, in theory, let's say that based on the, just use round numbers, let's say that the average player should have a 10% chance of, like, winning the event. I think that the average player in a TFT event is actually, like, closer, in that event would be closer to, like, 8% or 7%, and that a wide percentage is getting gobbled up at the top. Because I think there's so much opportunity for skill expression in a, in a tournament of TFT that if you actually have an edge over the field that is meaningful, you can play so much more consistently that it's very, very hard to get more done. 
Mm. See, that's like a um, what's it called? I think that's like an over one of the overstated like uh things is like how quote unquote close like the skill level is between like players when in reality it like it really isn't. Like a lot of people, you know, will see that like oh you know these players are you know. 1500, 1600 LP, or each on, like, ladder, they must be, like, evenly matched and whatnot, and, and so therefore, you know, obviously this logic isn't true at all, but, you know, they come to the conclusion that, therefore, the difference maker must be RNG, when in reality, like, TFT is such a complex game, and, like, even the best players are making mistakes literally all the time, so that, like, the, there's actually so much more room there, right? For, like, you know, for, for edge to be gained, for things to be optimized, and, and it really does show, especially in, like, a tournament situation where, you know, the pressure is sort of cranked up to, you know, 100, right? Um, which players are going to, you know, which players are going to show up on the day, which players are going to crack on the pressure, right? It really, really does show. Yeah. And, and how good are they at that moment in time? And that mm-hmm. form is a combination of, like, where their skill's at, what is their knowledge at as it relates to the patch? Do they have any kind of a knowledge edge in terms of understanding certain things like Gubas had a huge knowledge edge he understood how broken the debonair tree was and he could play around that he understood how broken four clockwork was and he could play around that there were a ton of units and I, he was one of the only players slamming zz rots when no literally no one was slamming zz rots right outside of dark star um there were a ton of things that Gubas was that Gubas was doing that were correct that other people weren't doing but if you look at like the arc of the set for example i think that ramblin was the best player for the first bit of the set and i think appies was the best player in north america to the middle of the set i think goobins is only the best player at the very end of the set basically mm. and and that's mm-hmm. just getting into different form and you know continuing to learn the set and find your advantage over the rest of the field so it's not like a 1500 lp player is created equal across all the different events it changes a lot event by event and it's not hindsight analysis but if you because it's not i'm not basing on the results but if you watch the games you can actually see the difference mm-hmm Sure. Absolutely, especially when it comes to the biggest tournaments, um, and it, it really bared fruit at, at regionals at the end of the day. You know, when you when you come up with uh, North America's best players, we won't talk about um, other regions in this because I think um, we'll kind of get bogged down in who the best is and things like that. But specifically talking about <laughs> North America, you know, like one of the um, one of the one of the best things about that regional event was you could probably look at the top eight lobby at the end of it maybe with some exceptions of, of course um appy's not making it uh asa things like that you could probably say that, that those eight understood where they were in the like how to position themselves and where they were in the pantheon of players coming into that event and how to maximize their their value out of the tournament um because you know uh we talked about this a lot uh luck is not luck is not a limiting factor in this game using luck and skill to your advantage in this game sets you apart from a lot of other people uh, how to maximize your odds against other people is one of the most important skills you can learn in high level tft uh, you know low low and i i've been thinking about this a lot recently and we talk a lot about this on this podcast about the um the cascading waterfall of soju viewers and how uh, something happens in soju's stream that inflicts Soju's chat, which inflicts every other TFT streamer's chat, which falls down the waterfall down to like little streams and new players and things like that. And everybody sort of forms these similar base level opinions. And one of those is that like luck in this game is a bad thing. And it's not because you can't, <laughs> you have to maximize your luck. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's always funny when people, like, have the idea. I mean, it's, like, it, it, it's pretty funny where you play a game that literally has, like, a button that says reroll, and then you have all these percentages. Like, the game you're playing is literally, like, <laughs> a, a, like a quote-unquote luck-like simulator. So, like, you know, it's mm. literally the game we play. It's all about, minim like, minimizing um, low roll and maximizing high roll. It's quite literally the game, right? So... Yeah, I don't think Soge is the worst defender of that at all. I mean, for, for content, sure. You know, I got more dogged, whatever, right? But that's just, he's a good, he's a really, really good content creator, and he understands, like, what his audience is going to associate with. I think the worst defenders is the high elo players that are constantly pushing more to reduce RNG and increase player skill expression, and they're, mm -hmm. they're missing the forest through the trees. They're missing that, like, what makes the game special is the high RNG. Variable. Yeah, and that, for sure. Actually, if you really go down deeper, uh, uh, the higher percentage of luck in a lot of cases is pushing more skill expression. Now, there are examples of that that are that is not true, right? Like, Mordog's stance that you, there will always be an odds of getting a legendary unit on level 7 because it's a fun high roll moment. I agree with that. I think that's a correct decision. That's not the best thing for, like, the competitive mm -hmm. health of the of mm -hmm. the esport, but it, it you know it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, agreed with you on that one. I think um, we're very lucky as a community to have engaged devs. It certainly doesn't happen yeah. in every community. Um, yeah, and more like putting himself out there is such a crazy thing to do because there's a lot of people that do not appreciate you know do not appreciate the sort of. The kind of things we're talking about here, like skill expression and and luck versus skill and and those kind of things, um, that's a really um, uh, that's a really hard thing to do, and and we're very lucky to have that. And and I think that him being able to sort of come out and say when things aren't going well or when things are going well are both equally valuable. Uh, Bryce, I wanted to come to you and talk quickly because we're talking a lot about like high level events and tournaments and maximizing odds and things like that. We've had a lot of discussions about uh, the overall tournament structure of TFT right now. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about where you'd potentially like to see that go in the future. I have, I mean, I have infinite thoughts on that subject, mm. right? Cause I've worked across basically every major esport for the last decade. And so I, I have a lot of thoughts about what could work or what couldn't work. But I, the reality of the situation is there's the perfect tournament circuit in a vacuum or competitive format in a vacuum, but there's a, a an overlying problem to all of this, which is that if you can't meaningfully increase the prizing of the events, then you can't actually do the kind of perfect pie in the sky system whatever that winds up looking like, because it's just, you don't have the incentive to get people to show up, the big players to show up and compete in these events. And so the problem statement of, just looking at the North American competitive circuit for a second, of no one really cares about any tournament except for regionals is very accurate, by and large. And there are certain players that are, take every tournament seriously and are trying to put their best foot forward, in part because they know that it's good content. To like be successful in these tournaments is a great way of getting recognized. Many of the best players have gotten on the map for finding that level of competitive success. But, and in part because it's just they don't get to play in tournaments so often, so it's nice to get your shot. But the reality of it is, that it's, it is kind of, it does often feel pretty low stakes as a viewer, and it's hard to pretend like we have big stakes for those sometimes as a caster, though it depends a little bit on the event that we're talking about. 
But I don't think you can actually solve that problem without being able to, to meaningfully increase the prize pool. And if you talk to all of the smart pro players that are that complain infinite about the system, there's a few things that are very obvious. Like for example, when Ramkep got screwed, I can't remember which event it was, where he like it was they did a point reset after three games, then he had another three games. And he was the top average placer on the day, and he didn't make it to day two. Okay, that's just bad format, right? But those yeah. are pretty rare exceptions for the most part mm-hmm. i think we can nibble around the edges of some of the existing formats but they're not bad in general it's like a combination of mm-hmm. elite invite only the tournaments of challenger series middle of the pack tournaments that are you know 30-ish person fields and then what, bigger fields that give a lot of opportunity for you know up-and-comers to take their shot and maybe have a really successful event i mean i wish that zon cup and piltover cup didn't have like five winners or whatever the heck it is. I can't can't remember exactly. So there's definitely some things I would improve about the format, but I really think anyone who's pretending like they could come up with a format that solves all of these problems with the existing prizing is kidding themselves. Yeah. Um, And really, the whole debate was started off that very point that you're making there. There's not enough money in the game to give the professional players and the casters and all the people what they want basically and the people that love this game they we don't get the same enjoyment out of it if the competitive players if the people that you love watching are interested in it if they're not interested you're not going to have as much fun anybody nobody's going to have as much fun there's less incentive for um you know you talked about earlier having like busy weekend plans you know like there's less incentive for you to like for people to rearrange their schedules or to change plans or to to spend extra time actively focusing on a tournament because there's no there's no real incentive in it aside from the love of the game and the love of the game only takes you so far in communities as we've seen for as long as gaming's been alive you know the love of the game will keep games going way longer than they should but if the the people at the top uh abandon it or, or don't give it the love and, and care or monetary incentive that it needs then then where's it going to go uh, which is but unfortunate. It's very early days still. I know it, it feels like it's been yeah. happening forever, and it's easy to say it's Riot Games, so why don't they just invest more? We're not a charity case. This It has to make economic sense. There are some realities to competitive TFT that I think that as fans, we don't really wrap our arms around appropriately. Like, for example, the main broadcast of every event is always significantly smaller than the individual streamers or even the co-streams in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. And so it's harder to monetize the main broadcast product directly than it is in some of these other big esports and basically every other big esport. And that could be an opportunity if it's thought of the right way, but it's not like we should look at the existing situation and say to ourselves, okay, Riot should be quadrupling the prize pool. It's crazy they don't because the reality is that is just unrealistic for the current size and engagement with TFT esports. It's a little bit chicken or the egg, but not all the way chicken or the egg if we're being honest about it. Um, so I think that we do have a lot of time. They're staffing up TFT. They're thinking about it more critically from an esports perspective. There's a lot of testing and learning that we need to do and a lot of growth potential. But I, I also think, and this is too far afield for us to really get into, but I think there's a heavy amount of we need to reimagine what it means uh, to be an esport as it relates to TFT specifically. I think of just continuing the main broadcasts as they, as they exist today. If the main broadcast two years from now looks like it does today, we have failed. There's so much opportunity to do it better and differently. If you if you listen to the fans, a lot of them say, and I say this as a, as a caster that's like trying to bring people into this, 
that say this is not a compelling product, that do not, mm. in general, want to watch the main broadcast because it's very disjointed. You're trying to follow eight different players, which means you basically follow none of them. You know, in, in, in I will say that the, it's very hard to be an excellent TFT caster in the current system. And if you don't, if you're not deeply knowledgeable about the players, about the game state at that time, you tend to not add a ton of value to the broadcast. And so I don't know why a viewer would join in a lot of the time. Hmm. Yeah, we uh, we did a watch party for Worlds, you know, the two of us. We're watching the main broadcast. I just want to bring this up basically because to watch TXE, to watch Ron during the event, we yeah. at one point were watching a Spanish language stream um base you know of, of a land in madrid uh we were watching a chinese stream on a chinese website yeah um we what i mean we were watching gooba we were watching goobums pog to watch ron every like like every seven rounds that goobums would yeah but Oh, it was DK Puff, but yeah, close, close, close stuff. They're both NA, I guess. It's an objectively terrible viewing experience to mm. be a fan of a player, to want to follow their journey in an individual game and to not feel like you get to be a part of that. And that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that was just... Uh, I just wanted to anecdotally add that onto the end of your story because I, I totally agree with you. I think it's really... Um, it's really necessary for the the player pov aspect to be more um to be more focused on but at the same time you know we've talked to we've talked to doa we've talked to crowen we've talked to jirachi about these kind of things on the podcast before and everyone has so many great ideas about how to improve the the broadcasting experience of of tft it's just um it's going to take a lot you know and i'm very glad to hear something along the lines of them staffing up and them really putting a lot of effort into this i know they went out and asked a lot of pro players what they want out of tournaments how to get them to come to tournaments and things like that so i, I do hope that that continues um so very quickly before we head to questions uh last night at 2 a.m or so australian time we got a suspected leak of set yes. seven um we're just going to touch on it very 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 quickly and um we will just say uh bryce has yeah, I'll be. Set, I'm gonna no comment. Set seven knowledge. So, <laughs> so his his section yep. is totally no commented. But um, mm -hmm. for the very very two second brief from what we you know what we've seen, I just want to just want to ask you one quick question: Is there anything yep. in there that you think you're happy to see? Eight and ten cost units. Bat chest. <laughs> Bat chest. <laughs> <laughs> More or less, yeah. I mean, it's pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think it's really cool. I will say, um, you know, obviously all this stuff is, we don't know how true it is, if it's subject to change. You know, we can't ask Bryce because he's no comment. But I will just say it's really cool to see um, Bard back in some way. I love bar old Bard. That's one of my cool. favorite units. Meat mm. farming. Meat farming. Learn how to be alive. 3.5. Is our favorite set on this podcast? I think it's fair to say. Oh, that's a yeah. Hot take. Mm. Wait, that's a hot take. Is it really? I mean, it was really? good. It makes it makes it makes basically everyone top yeah. five, but I don't know that it makes anyone's mm. top one. Really? Okay. Was I mean, so I like the set. It was uh, Sox's favorite, right? I can see that. It, it, no, 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 no. Sox's favorite is uh, Sephal. Oh, I thought Sephal wasn't Sox, isn't Sox, Sox a set two truther basically? 
Oh, he likes yeah. that too, but I'm pretty sure it's Sarah is F4. Because of Treasure. Yeah. We makes so many people's top ones, and I swear, I've never heard more bitching in the TFT community than a Chosen with yeah. the mechanic. I'm pretty and sure. It's it unbelievable me. how many people complain about Chosen, and now we're like, okay, <laughs> we, yeah, that was pretty good. It's like, okay. you, you guys just complain. Can I bring you something? There's this really weird thing in TFT where people get nostalgic. For sets after they're gone, and like yeah. they're, they're those same people will be the people who bitch the whole time. So I have talked to so many people who are like, you know what, Shadow Islands weren't that bad for the game. You know what, <laughs> <laughs> that one was all right. It's like, dude, dude, are we playing the same game? Like, <laughs> I, I always like set two. I, I mean, set two was horribly imbalanced, but I think that set was lit. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it oh, too as well. So I was funny. always a bit of a set two fanatic, and I only played it for three weeks. That's when I started playing TFT. Oh, okay. Um, and I loved it because I watched so it. many great units, so yeah. many great units, and some great traits. I want, I want summoners back. More, bring summoners, summoners. back, please. Ooh. Summoners are cool. Yeah, Ooh. cool fun. I mean, there were some issues with summoners in that set, but I would love a reprise of this of the trait. Yeah, I'm really, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing Zeds in my dreams right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, guys, uh, that's going to do it for the base uh, portion of our episode. We're going to move on to the question time now. So if you do have any questions, and I'm so sorry to say this, but if you have a question in Twitch chat, feel free to ask it uh, for any of us. Um, I trust you guys. You know, If you do definitely want to get your question answered, by the way, please join the Discord, um, and you can post in our questions. Uh, chat every week for our guest and your question will usually always get answered yep all right let's go without further ado um yeah this one's for bryce uh creating podcast slash show style content is something you do on a weekly basis do you think that there's space for more tft shows in the future so i guess like more types of shows i guess than the ones that are currently that currently exist yeah, there definitely are, but I think that people need to be intentional about it. So when when it started, there were very few. And so like the main one that I would think about would be, you know, the team fight talk show right on Giant Slayer, which is awesome and everyone tuned in for it. And then as more and more podcasts got added, if you don't have an identity, it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle. There's so many of them, right? Like the Triforce Tactics got set up and it was so it's so great. But it was unclear what its niche was. But at the time when it launched, its niche was, hey, we're just another TFT podcast. And there aren't very many of us, so this is great. And I think that the show that the three of them put on is awesome. And I tune in almost every episode. But I think that they need to evolve and figure out what their niche is. And I think that the reason why Don't Talk If You Don't Know has been received as well as it has is because it was a very specific project. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. It was The segments are completely different than anything else that's out there. It We know who our audience is. It's the most hardcore tft you know na tft fan basically um and we knew that our addressable market for that was really small but that we could get a huge percentage of that addressable market interested because we were going to be giving them something that was going way deeper than anything else that was out there and i think you know the two of you guys have a great show that you know draws in the oce viewership and i think that if you're going to create something Think about what's missing out there and try to fill that gap. I think First or Eighth is a great example of that, where what, what Boop and Giant Slayer have put together is something that's totally different, fun, and it's irreverent, and it's and it's it's compelling, and it gets chat involved in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of elements of that show that make it so great. And so there's definitely room out there to create the next big piece of TFT content. But if you're just 
putting together a group of people with microphones to talk about TFT, I think you're missing an opportunity to fill some kind of a void that exists in the current content landscape. That's a fantastic answer. That is a really, really great answer. I think um, to jump on on top of that very quickly as well, um, high roll radio, like call-in show, fantastic. So good. Hotline League is so successful for League of Legends. Like Since it started, it was such a good premise. Get the community involved in a way where they can interact with um streamers content creators professionals on um on like a i don't want to say first name basis you know but i will use the example of like what you said bryce like every week you and Froden sit down on the couch and talk about tft before you started the podcast that's what it feels like to be a part of like a radio show sometimes you know you actually get to sit down and talk to somebody about tft maybe you're the only one in your friends group in real life that likes tft so that's a great idea. Uh, Ace's new show where he talks to professional streamers about their streaming career is a really great idea as well. Why they stream TFT, what they like about TFT. So having a having a set idea um, is is paramount to success. You know, we came into this knowing exactly exactly how we wanted to portray ourselves. We wanted to be OC first. We wanted to talk to OC players, shine a light on the community, and um, I I think it's fair to say at this point we've been relatively successful. So um yeah really really good answer really good question as well cool uh moving on uh how do you improve your tft knowledge for someone looking to create slash cast events how do you pr- improve your tft knowledge for someone looking to create slash cast events uh i'm having trouble compartmentalizing my answer here because Mm -hmm. there's knowledge of tft which definitely is part of casting and then there's the casting skill part of casting so i I would treat those two things separately i think that Mm -hmm. look tft is a knowledge-based game and and there are examples of casters out there that are low knowledge high entertainment and I enjoy listening to some of them at times, but if I'm being honest, I think that they're dating themselves in a really aggressive way as it relates to their ceiling of what they can achieve as a caster, because if the the good and bad thing of competitive TFT is that a huge percentage of the audience is actually like quite good at the game, right? It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If you're engaged in the esports, it's going to be the more hardcore folks. And so you need to be able to uh talk about the game at level that makes sense to your audience um and txe said analyst and color caster combos are frequent because of this that's true but i think in tft it's a real like froden and i i I, you know one of the more established casting duos and i think what makes us so successful is because look technically i am the analyst and or i'm color well wait i I think it's actually play by play and then analyst slash colors within typical roles right Mm -hmm. technically i'm like color slash analyst and dan is host but Dan's TFT knowledge is as good, if not better, than mine most of the time. And we, the two of us, are probably the joint most knowledgeable casters. Like, if you put our knowledge up against any casters in TFT in any region that I'm familiar with, I think we're among the best. And I think that allows us to engage in a lot more fluid conversation about TFT where it's not just, okay, Dan is low knowledge, but good energy, good host, and he can ask me questions and we can have a dialogue about it. It can be back and forth. And if he kicks it over to me to do play by play, it's something that we've worked on and I can do it and, and vice versa. And, you know, we can drill deeper because it's not just he tees me up, I give analysis and he does another point and I give analysis and so on and so forth. I think that that formula is, is a, uh, 
bad formula for for casting TFT in general. Um, and so I I think that if you if you do want to be a TFT caster, then pushing your knowledge is really important. And so in general, being like high rank in TFT, it or being high rank as a caster doesn't really matter. You don't need to be like you know. Uh, whatever, challenge level League of Legends player, you will cast League of Legends, because there's a ton of mechanics, things going on there, it doesn't make sense for you to spend all your time on that grind, but in TFT, I think you kind of do. Like, if you're not, like, if you're not challenger because you don't have the game rep, that's different, right? Like, I have sets, you know, I play really, really low volume of TFT, but if your knowledge is not challenger level, that's a problem. If you've played 300 games of TFT in a set, and you're hard stuck masters in that set, then you actually have fundamental issues with your TFT knowledge, and that will come through on broadcast. So you do need to know that stuff. And then separately, as a caster, you need to study good casters. You need to pay attention not just to TFT, but to other games, other sports, right? There's a lot of things going on that you can improve in your voice control, in your, um, in your like, understanding of what you should be talking about when and how you interact with your, cal- your, your uh, co-caster and all this different type of stuff. So there's a lot of things you can do to improve, like, the technical elements you're casting that are not related to your TFT knowledge, and you need to do both of those things. So, like, when I started my journey, I was pretty good on the knowledge side, and I was terrible on the technical skill side. So I did a lot of working on the technical skill. And different people start from different places as it relates to that, so it's hard for me to give kind of generic advice, but if you were going to try to be a TFT caster... I would want to be really strong in both of those areas. That's amazing advice. That yeah, that is good. really good advice. I will yeah. say, um, I will say that just very quickly on top of that, I think um, uh, TXE Ron put up a really good point. There's a lot of downtime in TFT. TFT is not an all action and an all action all the time event, especially like League of Legends, where the majority of the analysis is done pre-game or in the very early stages of the game, setting up how, where, and why fights will take place on a League of Legends map. TNT is not like that, because your early game is very determining, probably, of how the end game is going to go, not all of the time, but more than 50% of the time, I would say, how your game starts is often how it finishes. Um, So a lot of the early game you um and we talked about this with crowen and doa quite a lot a lot of the um analysis for tft is um we know what we know about this person what do we know about dqa goobums socks milk and what do we know about them as a player what do we know about how they transition where they transition their game how they like to play items so we can make educated not necessarily guesses but educated comments towards the, their state of the game so you're, you're really sort of psychoanalyzing players before an event um learning yeah. about their play style and really growing from there so i think that the the like analytical aspect of tft is more uh, is very much a um knowledge base for yourself and a knowledge base of the people that you're that are playing in the event because you need that high level knowledge of the players um otherwise you're just even if you have all of that tft knowledge if you don't know the people that you're casting if you don't know everything about their play style you're going to fall short as well completely agree with that definitely all right um still on the topic of casting uh what is your favorite moment during a tft game as a caster i mean the ending sequence probably 
right? I mean, it's the the mm-hmm. t- certain games, the story, the flow of the story can be very different depending on the game, right? Like oftentimes a you know a CS:GO map or a League of Legends game or whatever can feel very decisively ended pretty early on. Um, CS:GO is a little bit different because you know games esports that have snowball mechanics be, make the comeback harder and harder as a team gets ahead whereas in csgo theoretically like you get a, you're going to get a gun round roughly one every two rounds and you can come back off of that you know something with valorant so there's kind of inherent capability of staying on an even playing field but in tft it's the whole story is always building to the end every single time um and so it's it is literally impossible to have a uh, moment in stage two or three that will ever be more exciting than a moment in stage five or six. And there are limited exceptions to this. Like, you know, Recombobulator could be really hype or, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, Nico rolling for Mercs on 2-1 in order to secure his mm-hmm. spot at uh, at regionals was a really hype moment. But that is so rare, right, for that to happen. So it's almost always kind of the ending sequences. And for me personally, I love a good 1v1 where it's two players, of, and this happens so rarely, but it's two players of relatively equal board strength and relatively equal skill and that allows us to tell the story of here are the boards here's what this board's trying to accomplish here's what this board's trying to accomplish who is going to win the crazy chess match between these two players and being able to have a few rounds to bring that to life and to make it feel like a player has really accomplished something is awesome uh, and and it does happen very rarely, but there's like a game in Worlds two worlds ago where Robin, there was two, three people playing Aphelios, and Robin was not able to hit Aphelios and was stuck on Aphelios one for a really long time, wound up winning this game by solidly outpositioning his opponents, and it was so fun to kind of bring that moment to life and talk about it and you know why he was able to get this win that that really he probably didn't deserve. The other players probably if they had played optimally would have beaten him in that game. So stuff like that is is really fun. Yeah. Wait. All yeah. right. Um, Guys, sorry, do you want to go no, no, that's okay. I was just going to say that's going to do it for our questions today. We do have to um, uh, keep the pod just around uh, this time. So I want to personally say uh, a big thank you, first of all, to my lovely co host, Sol, for joining me as always for our 26th episode. Yep. Uh, yeah, really sorry for all the people who also submitted questions that we didn't get around to, but yes. Unfortunately, due to time constraints, we. Yeah, this is on me. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I, 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 and I, w- I was going to stretch it. My wife is texting me like, No, it's already, it's already go. been stretched. Like, already... <laughs> okay, yeah, no, no, you're good. You're good. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, okay. Oh, cool. Okay. So can we at least get... Okay. We can at least get uh, Maxine Wallboy's question. Uh, Bryce, can you please say Babette? Babette? All right, yeah, uh, thank you. Great. Thank yeah, you, you guys got it. <laughs> Thank you. That's Ron's thing. That's for Ron. Uh, guys, I would like to finally send a big thank you, of course, to Bryce, to Esports Law, for joining us today. Bryce, for um, I know that we have everybody, uh, of course, who will know about you, but if uh, if we have listeners that don't, where can they find you? Uh, at Esports Law on Twitter, although I don't tweet overly much these days, if I'm being honest. It's kind of a thing that I did a while ago that I'm not that interested in doing very often. Um, you know, you can follow, you know, we do Don't Talk If You Don't Know, and there's a D- DTIYDK show, I think, on Twitter is the uh, is where you can follow the podcast and see if the date there, so maybe check that out. And, um, yeah, enjoyed it a lot. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, guys. So well, much that's that's going to do it for episode 26 of The Roll Down for me, Cutler, and my 
co-host Sol, and of course uh, Bryce Esports Law. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you guys next time. All right, sick. Thanks, Bye, everyone. Guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Bye. so much, Bryce. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to have to dash, no, guys, no, but no I enjoyed it a lot. Good, and, uh, right. We'll do it again. No worries at all. Thanks no worries. So much. All right, all right. Cheers. Cheers. Take care, Bryce. Bye.